Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Man, all right. Welcome again. It's good to be here with you guys tonight. Um, as you heard, Awana will be starting up again. That's our Wednesday night kids program on October 7th. Uh, you do got to register your kids for that. You can do it ahead of time online, or you can do it that night here. Um, so just be aware of that. Mark it down. It's coming up just a couple of weeks away. Um, also, this we have one week left of the prayer initiative, the September prayer meetings. I know it kind of goes by quick, um, but please, if you if you still are in that, keep doing it. And please remember this, is that when that's over, we don't want prayer to stop, <laughs> you know? So we, we meet for prayer every Wednesday at 6 p.m., and God has been moving just as mightily in there as I hope in your homes and in the different places. So uh, if, if, if God has lit a fire in you, if you've seen the effectiveness of it, like at least join us on Wednesday nights at 6 and if you want to keep praying in your homes, you know, you can go ahead and keep doing that, you know, but, uh, but please continue and remember to do that. We are tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 8, so if you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers right now so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study. And, um, and tonight I want to just begin, there's a hand right there, middle of my left. Uh, we're going to begin with prayer tonight, and then, and then we'll get into uh, the Word. So... Let's just ask God to settle our hearts in his word. So Lord, we just come to you tonight and we thank you, Father, for uh, just who you are. We thank you that you're here in our midst. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that your presence is so calming, it's so real, it's so powerful. And Lord, your voice is so uh, pure, it's empowering, and it's hope-filled, Lord. So we just pray tonight that you would speak to us through your word, that you'd meet us where we're at. We ask, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would convince us, that you'd motivate us, that you'd move us, Lord, in the direction that you'd have us to go as your people and as the church in this day. We thank you, Lord, for how accurately your word uh, teaches us now through what happened then. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be the speaker tonight to us personally. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you guys know that it's an election year? <laughs> I, I mean, is anybody just catching on to that, you know? <laughs> Politics, government, it's like you can't get away from it. They say that there, if you're socially wise, that there's two topics that you'll avoid. That is God and government. I thought maybe tonight we would hit both of those. <laughs> what do you think, you know? Um, when I was 19 years old, uh, I, think I, I think I held the title of the world's wisest person at the ripe old age of 19. I mean, I really knew everything that there was to know. And, uh, you know, my, my worldview and my philosophy, the foundation of it was basically that people should just be left alone, that we shouldn't have government, that we shouldn't have uh, laws, we shouldn't have everybody telling us what to do, that everybody should just be able to live their lives and everybody should just mind their own business. You know, and that was, that was really the depths of what I thought. I thought that's how the world would work. Now, uh, what I have since learned uh, is that, you know, people are not basically and fundamentally good, all right? That's, what I, that's the premise I was working off of, that everybody will do the right thing if everybody is just left alone. 
and I have found that that is emphatically untrue, that that just is not the case. Uh, I learned that um, at, at, when I was 19 years old, my best friend and I, we went um, to a concert up in Maine. It was called the Lemon Wheel, and it was a three-day-long event. Um, there was one band that was highlighting. They were going to play for 72 hours with short breaks, and it was just like this big thing. And there was 100,000 people there. It was on an Air Force base, and when you came in, you couldn't go out unless you know it was in an ambulance or something. So they basically like kind of sealed you in there. And the reason they did that is because there was no laws. There was no police. There was no authority. It was whatever goes. And I remember going through that gate and thinking, this is what life is all about. This is how it's all supposed to work. You know, well, without getting into all of what happened over the course of that three days, after leaving that place, I gave my life to Jesus very shortly, okay? Because I realized that there was some holes in my utopian theory. As I, as I realized that this is not a good thing. We cannot have a world without laws, a society without any kind of government at all, you know, um, and, and I was really depressed after that, and I gave my life to Christ after that, you know, so um, we are actually in a, a, a portion of the Bible right now that overlays where we're at as a society and as a world unbelievably so, and so as we are in First Samuel, what we're seeing is a transition. We see that Israel as a whole has become very uh, corrupt. Their politics and their religion have really become very swamp-like, you know, and that's a word that we hear a lot in an election year. When we talk about the swamp that is our politics, the swamp that is Washington, D.C., and we're looking for a leader or a set of leaders that will drain the That's right, because swamps. And so there was a swamp, and what we've seen over the past seven chapters is that we have seen the swamp being drained. And now, as we come into chapter 8, we see what's going to happen on the other side of all of that, and it's a very important passage of Scripture, and it speaks to us now. So let's just read the first six verses together and then get into it. It says in verse 1, it says that it came to pass that when Samuel was old... Okay, so God's vessel has been prepared. He's run the course of his ministry. And now it is getting to that time when the people know that Samuel will soon hand off the baton to someone else. It says that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel and the name of the second Abiah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, behold, you are old. That's great. That's, I don't know, that's politically correct, right? But you go to the, the leader and don't do that to Pastor Bobby. You know, just don't, you are old. And your sons walk not in your ways. And here's their request. They said, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed 
unto the Lord. Okay, so all of this has happened in Israel over these past years. They've lost their system. They've lost their old leaders. They lost the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant had been taken. The, the nation had been unstable for a period of 20 years now. And there's a little bit of weariness, but there's also a little bit of hope because there's a sense that God is renewing, that God is doing something, and the people are looking forward with expectation to what God is going to do. But then what they find is that they find the background that we see in the first three verses of this chapter. And there's five words that I want to pull out for you from verses one through three that really highlight what the people were seeing as they looked at the state of their nation in this time. First of all, it says concerning Samuel, it says that he put his sons in place as judges in Israel. So his sons were put in place. Now, what does this mean? It means that Samuel was putting people that he knew that maybe were and maybe weren't qualified. They were certified, but they were not qualified. They were fit for the podium, but they weren't fit for dealing with people. We see that they weren't the same type of people. What, what else does he say? The second word I want you to notice there is the word walked that you see there. It says that they walked not in the same way that Samuel walked. Whereas Samuel was motivated by God, and so he walked in God's path, the sons were motivated by gain, and so they walked in a different path. The third word I want you to notice is the word aside. It says that they turned aside. The word aside in the Hebrew literally means shifted or stretched meaning that they were shifty in their politics. It means that sometimes they were for fracking or against fracking or for fracking being in the dictionary or is fracking a curse word. They, did, they just shifted. Whoever they were talking to, they would say what they had to say in order to get what they needed to get. It also means stretched, which means that they would kind of stretch things out in order to make room for what they wanted. They knew how to manipulate. They turned aside. The fourth word I want you to notice there where it talks about uh, lucre and bribes, it's money. In other words, their chief motivator was their own wealth. They were motivated by money. And then finally, the word, the fifth word I want you to notice is the word perverted. It says that they perverted justice. That is that they twisted justice in order to suit their cause. And so this was what the elders of Israel were seeing. They were seeing the sons. They were seeing the walk. They were seeing they turned aside. They were seeing motivated by money. They were seeing that they were perverted and they saw that the swamp that they had just seen eliminated was now returning. They realized that they were heading right back into what they had come out of and all of their check engine lights went on and they realized this is a problem. We have a problem, okay? The message tonight is called the swamp swap, all right, because that's what was about to happen. They had had a swamp and they were going to trade it for another swamp. And they said, no, we don't want to go back to where we were. We don't want what was. We want something that's brand new. And so they come to Samuel now with this request. They say, we want a king. 
We want a better, a more stable, a more accountable, a more administrative form of government so that we can have stability like the other nations. And that's what they came and they asked Samuel for in this time. And again, it says that Samuel was grieved by this. Government. Isn't government so wonderful? Isn't it great that we have to have leaders, political people that make laws and decisions on our behalf and, you know, that lead policy and write policy and all? It's amazing. There was a time in the world when, like my utopia, it existed that there actually was no government at all. It's true. There was a time when there was none. It was in the Garden of Eden. And it was when God first put the man and the woman there, it was before the fall. There was absolutely no government at all. They were there, and they just lived. They knew what they existed for. They walked, and they existed in that purpose, and it was working. It was wonderful. And there was really only one boundary that God had put before them. He said, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't have the capacity right now to discern what's right and what's wrong. You don't have that in you. And so you don't have to worry about making those decisions. You don't have to assume responsibility for your actions because you don't know the difference. And that's the way it was. But when Adam and Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they assumed responsibility for their own actions. They were essentially saying as collective representatives for all of humankind that we now want to govern ourselves. We want to take the responsibility of government on our own shoulders. And God said, okay. And ever since that time, there has been government in the world. Now, the very first form of government that God allowed, man was allowed to govern himself, and he was to be governed by conscience and outcomes. That was the governor, conscience and outcomes. And we read about it in Genesis chapter 4. We see Cain and Abel, the first sons of Adam and Eve. And concerning Cain, it says that he did not live the right way like Abel, his brother, did. And so because he wasn't living right, things weren't going right. That's outcomes, And things weren't going right, and that was to be to him an indication that he wasn't living the right way. It was outcomes and conscience. Now, when things weren't going right for him, the result, it went to the next level. He didn't correct course, and so he became angry and depressed. Angry and depressed. It says that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. And it says that God actually spoke it to him. God said, why are you wroth or angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Why are you depressed? And God intended that still small voice that comes from within to be to him a governing voice that something was wrong. He wasn't living right. Things weren't going right. And so you need to correct course. But he didn't. He didn't obey the government that was there at that time. And he ended up killing his brother. He ended up becoming a refugee. And things went downhill real fast from there. Now, under that first form of government, where there was no laws and there was no official authorities, and man was responsible for himself to be governed by conscious and outcomes, the world became very wicked very fast. Because in a fallen condition where there's no official accountability, wickedness just multiplies quickly, rapidly, to the time that the flood came. 
And so the flood came in the days of Noah, and God destroyed and wiped out the whole thing. The whole world came under judgment because it was violent and wicked continually. And after the flood, God ratcheted up human government one notch, one degree. He said that the foundation now of human government is going to be that if man sheds blood, then by man, his blood will be shed. In other words, whatever you do, that's what will be done unto you. So it was a government, man's responsibility to enforce it, that was based upon fairness and justice. It was basically the golden rule. Do unto others what you would have them do, and it's going to happen to you as you do to someone else. And that was God's next form of government, and that went for a period of time. Now, man, under this system, did not use the responsibility of governing himself in order to enforce justice, but rather what man did was focus their political energy on resisting and rebelling against God. Thus, all the people came together. They were of one language and one voice. They said, let's build a tower unto heaven. Let's disobey God. And let's build a tower so high that we can basically shake our fist at God and say, you try to flood us out of here again. We'll just climb to the top of this tower and we will save ourselves. And so man rebelled against God, even yet in that, and God again intervened because you can't fight against God. There's no such thing as no accountability. You will give an answer for the things that you do. God judged and the nations were formed. Languages were dispersed. People went to the different places that they went to. And in that position, new governments began to form. People began to govern themselves. Now, every form of government that came since that time has followed the same general pattern, and that is of the triangle. You know that symbol that we see everywhere? It's on the back of your $1 bill. You know that pyramid thing? And you see it in almost every logo, every insignia, every symbol, everywhere. It is the symbol of what human government will always become, where there are a few elite, smart, strong, competent, or privileged people that are on the top of that, and everyone else falls somewhere under it according to their ability or their strength or their wisdom or their privilege, and governments begin to form like a chicken coop. It's the law of the chicken. All right. And so whether it's a monarchy or a dictatorship or whether it's socialism or a democracy, every form of government ultimately will find its form in that kind of a system or in that kind of a structure. Now, God developed a nation. He called Abraham. He developed his offspring. He birthed what became Israel as we know it in the Bible, his chosen people. And God established a brand new form of amazing government. He raised up Moses, who was not a king. He was a priest and a leader, meaning that he had a connection to God and a devotion to the people, and he was called to lead them. And through Moses, God gave to his nation a constitution. It's recorded in the Bible. It's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You can read the government that God established to his people through his servant Moses. It's all written out there. And it was the most comprehensive, detailed, and wise system of government that has ever 
existed in the history of humankind. It is so detailed, and yet it also reaches into the simplest and smallest things. It essentially consisted of three pillars. Number one was the Ten Commandments, (laughs) which were very, very practical things. Don't kill, don't cheat on your spouse, you know, honor God and your parents and your family, don't be dishonest. Like all things that a healthy conscience would say, yep, that's right. That's what we're supposed to do. The Ten Commandments. Second was the civil law. God said, this is how you're to work in society with people. Things like if some goat wanders onto your property, find out whose it is and then give it back. (laughs) You know, simple things like that. Like, don't just take it. You know, I think actually, I think my wife needs that. She's here tonight. This is this part of the service is for her because she's always finding things out in the front of people's yards and, and just assuming that just because it's there by the side of the road that it's free, you know, and she'll just, you know, just take it. Like, I'm telling you, I, I'm telling you, like in the last year, there's been like eight mailboxes that, that she, she's like, it was by the road. It was, they were throwing it out, you know, mailboxes, garbage cans, bicycles. I mean, it's crazy the amount of things that she, but, but listen, the Bible says, find out. Find out, verify, make sure. Are they really giving that away? You know, no, joking. But it's practical. It's fundamental and it's practical. And then the third pillar of the law was the Levitical system. That is what the priests were to do in order to keep people close to God. And so that was the constitution. That was the law that God had established through Moses to his people. And it was to be a guide. It was to be their goal. It was to be their standard And all this, and and here's the amazing thing, is that there were no kings and there were no governors, except for the people that were there appointed as leaders to help. There was no one elected in those places. It was just there. So here's what it meant. It meant that God's people were given God's ways, written down for them to read and learn, and then they were given the freedom and responsibility to live it out freely with the responsibility to self-police, meaning they knew who God was, they knew what God required, they had the ability to keep the simple things that God said, and not perfectly, but fundamentally, and then they had the responsibility to know God, to know his law and his ways, and to recognize their personal responsibility to do it, and then to pass it on to their kids. That's, how, that's the government that God established to Israel. And, and then, because of corruption and sin and complication, and because life is not easy in a fallen world, there was more that was developed. Judges came in. The whole period of the judges came in, where there were people that had to help. There were people that had to administer in the whole thing. But what happened over time is that those judges became corrupt. The judges were not appointed by intelligence or knowledge or wisdom or even spiritual uh, maturity, but rather oftentimes they were appointed by strength. They were appointed by, uh, by clout, the family that they were born into, and eventually there was corruption, there was injustice, there was compromise, hence the swamp that we see happen at the beginning of Samuel's days. The system had failed. The system was corrupt, not because of God, but because of man. And so finally, the elders of Israel, they're weary. They come to Samuel and they say, listen, enough. Make us like the other nations. 
set a king over us. We want someone who will enforce and, uh, and be accountable for these things. We want a kingdom, an administration, an organized government. That's what we want. And they said that their reason was, there's two reasons. The first one's given to us in verse 5. It says, so that we can be like the other nations. Now, uh, I'm curious, so I say, okay, well, what were the other nations doing at this time that they were so jealous of? And so I found this concerning Egypt in that day. It was the time of the intermediate period, the third intermediate period of Egypt, and and, uh, this is just a Wikipedia article, but it says this. It says that during the third intermediate period of Egypt, power was held almost equally between Tanis and Thebes early on, functioning at times one way or the other, and the two cities ruled jointly even though they had often different agendas, Tanis was the seat of secular rule, while Thebes was a theocracy. In other words, Egypt had gods, they had a religion, though it wasn't a real religion, and the two things both existed, but there was a separation between the religious life and the political life. And essentially, that is what the children of Israel are asking for at this time. They are saying, please give us a king that is not going to get the God part all clouded up. They wanted, in a sense, a separation of church and state. But listen, listen to me carefully here. It was not in order to keep God out of politics. It was to keep politics out of God. And there's a vast difference between those two things because it was getting so cloudy that people hated worshiping God because of the corruption that was creeping into the ecclesiastical or the religious worship system. And so they wanted something more organized. Okay, now verse six tells us that both God and Samuel were grieved, that they heard this and there was something inside and they, it bothered them. Samuel knew that it wasn't right. Because what he knew, what was right, the way it's supposed to work is that when a person is born, they come into this world empty and fallen, and they are to be taught, trained, and exercised, and disciplined in what is right in order that they might enjoy life by their parents. That is, that they're to learn, they grow, they, they begin life, they eat garbage, they feel like garbage. And so they learn that, okay, if I want to feel good, then I have to be disciplined about the way I do this part of my life. I have to train myself. If I want to be healthy, then I have to exercise. I have to sleep. I have to have a right balance, even in my mind, mentally. It's not easy, but it's on me to do this. I have to take responsibility for my life. For money, okay? I have to work. I have to save. I have to invest. I have to grow and develop. And I have to learn what that is because otherwise it's poverty and, you know, reckless spending and, you know, all kinds of things that happen. Relationships. You have a relationship with someone and you are a self-absorbed, narcissistic jerk, And your relationships don't work and nobody wants to be around you and you can't find a spouse. And so you have to learn. You have to go to God's word and say, oh, I'm supposed to die to self and it's not all about me. And you have to train yourself to be about other people and not just about you. And that was God's intent is that we would learn, that we would grow, that we would be taught and discipled. And then 
in doing that, we would obey, and that that would then be an example of how life is supposed to work. I want to share a passage with you from Deuteronomy chapter 4. And just listen to this, because this is what God wanted. This was the, the idea that God had in establishing his government. It's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. Listen to what God says. He says, keep therefore and do them, that is his laws, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In other words, God wanted them to so flourish by living the right way without a governor, without a king, without a tyrant ruling over them that other nations would look in and see and say, how is it that you guys are flourishing so amazingly and we're all languishing on the vine? And they would then be able to say, this is our God. This is his word. These are his ways. This do and you will live. You can have the same exact thing. That's what God wanted for them. He says, for what nation is there so great who has God so near unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? God's ways work. And he wanted that to be a witness to the other nations. He didn't want his people to be like the other nations. He wanted them to be distinct. And so God gave them a government, but what they wanted was something different. They wanted to be like the other nations, and thus God didn't intend it. Samuel knew it, and thus he prays to the Lord. Now watch what God does in verse 7 as we move on uh, in the text, the fallout from this request. It says in verse 7, it says that the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore, hearken unto their voice. Okay, so God essentially hears the report that Samuel brings, and God says, you are correct, Samuel. This is not my will, and this is not a good request, but nevertheless, it's a right request, and it needs to be done, and I want you to appoint a king to them, even as it is that you're saying. Here's why. Because you say, well, why is God giving in so easily to this? Here's why. Because God's form of government only works if people are individually submitted to it. And listen carefully to that because it's important. It's not the collective testimony, meaning we profess this, but individually people have to buy into it, each one, in order for it to work. And so God's gripe is not with the elders who are asking. His gripe is with the people that aren't willing to take responsibility for their own actions. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says in the New Testament to shed light on this. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Listen to this. He says, For they that are after the flesh, that is them themselves, they want to do what they want to do. They do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, that is, they want God's will, 
then they are mindful of the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. That is to be selfish, all about me, I'm going to do what I want, lemon wheel, just whatever we want, no authority, no police. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That is to give yourself to God's will is going to produce life. Because the carnal mind, the fleshly selfish mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, listen, they that are in the flesh, they that are for themselves, they that don't want to take responsibility for their actions, they cannot please God. Now listen to verse 13. He says, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. In other words, if you live selfishly, then you are going to displease God and you are going to die. Swamp things are going to happen. Swamp creatures are going to be created in you and in your midst. It's going to come from it. Now, on the contrary, if you have a heart after God, if you have a heart to want to live the life that he has planned and ordained and you want to flourish and abound as a person and as a family and as a society, then you will go after the things of God. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It says this, this I say then, walk in the spirit that is live after God and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you go after the things of God and you walk in the power of his spirit, then you're going to live the right way. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another so that you can't do the things that you would. Now watch verse 18. But if you are led of the spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, if you have a heart that is inclined to go after the things of God, then you can live without governors and legislators and judges and police officers and tyrants and oppressors. You don't need the law if you have a heart after God. And that was God's intention when he gave the people their constitution under Moses. But now the people are so selfish and they're so not inclined after the things of God that God looks at Samuel and he says, yeah, they need a king. <laughs> it's not my will. It isn't right. Don't worry. They're not rejecting you. They've rejected me that I should not reign over them. Therefore, give them a king. The Psalm, or I'm sorry, the proverb says this. It says that because of the transgression of a land, many are the laws thereof. Where there is transgression, you need government. That's just the answer. That's what happens. Otherwise, you have chaos. And so God says, give them what they're asking for. Listen to their voice. William Penn was right. He said this. He said that if we will not be governed by God, we must be ruled by corrupt men. And that's exactly what's about to happen. Well, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, back in our text, or I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 8, verse 8, verse 9, rather, he says, listen to their voice, how be it? Protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the people or told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, 
for his chariots and for his horsemen, and some of them will run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of, chari- uh, instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards and the best of them and give them to his servants, and he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants, and he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work, and he will take the tenth of your sheep, and you shall be his servants or his slaves. God says, listen, Samuel, I want you to let it be clear that I'm going to give them what they're asking for, but make sure they know what they're asking for. Make sure that they have a very clear understanding of what they're going to get. And he says, essentially, they're going to get these things. There will be, in my land, there will be the creation of a government sector of jobs. It has never existed heretofore, but after this, it now will. That will result in a weakened generational prosperity. Because no longer will it be assumed that you are going to carry on the family fortune and the family business, but it will open up a whole series of new options for people to find work in different places or to be taken for work in other places. And it's going to weaken generational prosperity, which was a strength in Israel. It's also going to weaken the family structure. Because instead of building families, the emphasis will be on building government. It will be compromising in your education system because now no longer will you just simply be educated in your strengths, but now you'll be educated according to the desire and need of the government. It will also be a surrendering of your personal freedoms. You will now serve by compulsion and not by choice. If there's a draft, you won't willingly give yourself to, or, or, to a battle, but you will be required to serve in the battle, both male and female, in whatever form the king decides. Another consequence is that there will be taxes, and there will be taxes, and there will be taxes, and there will be taxes. There will be personal taxes and income taxes and capital gains taxes and sales taxes and real estate taxes and school taxes and land taxes. And you will be taxed on your taxes and there will be death taxes and you will be taxed and taxed and taxed and taxed. But here's the biggest problem of all. It's not listed in the text, but it's what happens is that you're going to give them someone to blame their problems on when you give them a king. They will now be off the hook of taking personal responsibility for their own actions, and they will be able to blame someone else for the problems in the land. And notice what verse 18 says, God prophesies, and he says, and you shall cry out in that day because of your king, which you shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. You think you're going to have it better because of discomfort in your present system, but rather than address the real issue and the real problem, you're asking for a quick fix in it, and I'm going to let you have it. But here's the catch, is that if you make your bed, you're going to have to sleep in it. 
It's amazing, isn't it, the things that people will do in order to avoid doing the hard work or doing something that is uncomfortable in a given situation that they might be in. You know, people might be in a marriage that is unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. The situation is bad. It's swampy. Things aren't right. And so they'll look for a way out of the marriage because they don't like the situation that they're in. They want, they want to get out of the situation. But they don't consider or think about what it is that they're going to get into when they get out of what they presently don't like. And they don't think about the fact that where they're going ultimately will be worse than where they are right now. And it happens all the time. People leave jobs because they're in a situation that they don't like right now. But it happens to be a stable situation. It's a God-ordained situation that they're in in this season for them and for their family. But they're uncomfortable with some of the political tensions on the job or the relations with their coworkers or their superiors. And so they'll leave it for the sake of having the temporary relief of getting out of the situation without considering what it is that they're going to get on the other side of it. They don't think about it. It happens in so many different areas. People leave college. They leave an area. They relocate. They leave churches for discomfort on certain levels, not thinking about what the domino and ripple effects are going to be down the road if they do. Here's the real issue is that most of the time when there is discomfort, and I say most of the time, because not always, but most of the time when you're uncomfortable with your situation, one half of the problem is you. And when you leave the situation, you're taking one half of the problem with you, and one half of the problem is enough to regrow the whole thing. And so you're just kicking the problem a little bit further down the road, and you're going to have to deal with that problem again, only you're still going to be fixing the ripple effect problems of the last problem that you left that you should have just stayed in. Because probably what's going on is that God was using that uncomfortable situation in order to teach and train you and develop something in you, and so that your prison that you were in was actually working to set you free. But you didn't see it that way then. You just wanted out of the situation. If there's a spirit of discontent, God will use a circumstance to teach you to be content in all things and to trust him and wait. If there's a spirit of laziness within a person or a problem of laziness within a person and God puts them in a situation that grates upon that laziness, God is working to get it out. He's working to fix and address it. But if you leave the situation, you take the problem with you. If you have a spirit of contention and you just can't get along with people, sometimes God will put you in contentious situations to burn the fight out of you so that you can learn how to get along with human beings. But if you leave the situation because you think it's going to be better somewhere else, but the problem hasn't been addressed, it's a lack of faith. I'm not saying that we should stay in every bad and uncomfortable situation that we're in. But it may be that an uncomfortable situation is God giving you an opportunity to fix a problem that's deeper than what you think. Here's the issue most of the time, is that people want to stay the way they are and they want their problems to go away. And that's exactly what's going on with the children of Israel here at this time. And I'll show you. Watch verse 19. It says this, nevertheless, 
the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, watch, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want someone else to fix the problem. You got to ask the question, why did they have battles? Because whenever they were right with God, they didn't have battles. God said that if a man's ways please the Lord, then even his enemies will be at peace with him. And that was Israel's whole history. All throughout the 400 years leading up to this point, when the people were walking with God, they had peace and they had no problems from any enemies. But when they went astray from God, God would raise up an adversary and then they would have battles and they would have fights. And what these people are saying to Samuel is, look, listen, we don't want to change. We don't want to be close to God. We don't want to do what's right. We just want someone that's going to fix the problem for us once we have the problem. We don't want to be in touch with God and we don't want to be afflicted. We don't want to eat right and we want abs and endurance and energy. We don't want to work and we don't want to be poor. We don't want to take responsibility for ourselves and we want to be free and not taken advantage of. We don't want to take the time and energy to really know our kids and raise our kids and we want them to turn out good, productive, and godly people. And so would you please set someone up that will do the part of life that we don't want to do so that we can just do me? I just want to do me. So find a way that I can have the outcome I want without fighting battles. Here's the truth. You can't have both. You can't do you and have someone else just do the rest and think that everything is going to work out just right. Well, Samuel hears this request and notice what he says. Samuel heard all the words of the people and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken to their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said, and this is very wise, unto all the men of Israel, he said, go ye every man to his city. He said, you guys go home right now. At the very least, Samuel says, I want you to get into the place where the solution really lies. And maybe, maybe once you get there, maybe once you get there, it will begin to speak to you concerning what the real issue and what the real problem is. See, what Israel was supposed to be to the nations, a witness of how life is supposed to work, that is what God wants the church to be from the time that Jesus established it on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 all the way to the present age. He wants you and I to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. What does salt do? Salt brings out flavor and helps you identify good contents of things that you didn't know were there because there wasn't something to bring it out. He wants us to be that. In other words, Christ wants to be so real in our lives, and he wants us to flourish and abound and be so filled with him and so full of life that people look at our lives as the church, and they say, what is it that you have that I want that I'm lacking? 
than I would cut off my left arm to get. Jesus said that we're to be the light of the world. What does light do? Light shows you things that you couldn't see in a dim or dark place. Meaning that there is life to be lived. There is freedom to be enjoyed. There is a place of flourishing and growth. There's a family structure that is amazing. There are marriages and relationships that God can build that are unlike anything that you ever even could think of. God says that we can't even, it doesn't even enter into our mind the things that he has prepared for those that love him. And what light does is light shines on something like marriage so that the world on the outside says, I didn't know it could be like that. I didn't know raising kids could be like that. I would want to be a homeschool family with a bus if I knew it could be like that. That's what light does. And that's what God wants us to be, wants the church to be in us. That's what we have. Now, we have God's word. We have God's spirit. We have God's wisdom. We have God's ways. And we have the opportunity to live out what God has ordained that we should do. It's a, it's a funny thing, you know, like, you know that verse that says that he, he, he doesn't call many that are wise, right? He doesn't call many that are noble. He doesn't call many that are strong. He, he, it says that he calls the weak things and he calls the base things and the things that are not, he says, why? He says, so that he can use the foolish to confound the wise. Here's the error that we make with that whole concept is that we kind of wear it. We say, okay, well, God called me. And he didn't call, he doesn't call wise, he called the, he does the foolish things to confound the wise. And so he calls us, we recognize our, 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 our uh, insufficiency, and then we stay there. Well, he uses the foolish things to confound the wise. No, 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 listen, listen. The reason why God calls the weak, base, and lowly things, it's not a matter of competence, it's a matter of contrast. Meaning that he calls us when we're in our weakest, lowest state, so that when he puts his spirit and his word and his wisdom and his opportunities in us, then we become such a contrast to what we were when he called us that people look in and they say, oh my goodness, what an amazing God you serve. How can I know him? And that's what God wants the church to be. And it should be irresistible. I did a side job over the weekend down in Mayo Pack uh, for someone who doesn't know me and I didn't know him. And I was there and I was working and my son was with me and we were doing stuff there and it was coming out good. Everything was going well. And the guy called me Pastor Nick. And I, I don't wear that on my shirt. I, I, I'm very, I don't go, adver you know, I'm not that guy you know? And if those of you that know me, you know that. When you say, hey, Pastor Nick, usually you'll hear me say, just call me Nick, please. You know, I'm just, I don't like that title. It's not me, okay? And so when he called me that, there was something in me, and I just got annoyed because I thought, how does this guy know that I'm a pastor? Now, I wasn't annoyed because I was doing poor work, you know, and I thought he was going to call me out on that or something like that, but I was really annoyed by it. And I even said something to Rocky later, you know, but, but, but then I had to check myself. I thought, why? And maybe it was the Lord. I thought, why, am I, why did that bother me so much that he called me that and that he knew that I was a pastor? You know? and, and I started to think about it. And I thought, well, maybe I'm in the wrong. Like maybe there's something in my heart that isn't right in the whole thing. And, and as I searched it around and poked around a little bit, I realized, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
And I'm certainly, you know, I want to be evangelical and open about things and everything, but why is it that it bothered me so much? And, and here's what I came down to, here's the, the, the reason, is that I realized that there's a stigma that once someone hears that you're a pastor or even hears that you're a Christian, there is a picture in their mind of what you are or of who you are. Or maybe there's a standard that they want to hold you to that's different than what, what everybody else is. And, and I guess all those things are true. It, it varies from person to person. But here's what I realized. I realized that, and, and this is probably wrong, okay? But I realized, like, I'm a little embarrassed. Like, honestly, like a little bit embarrassed when someone finds out that I'm a pastor, that I represent the church, because the state, I'm not saying of our church, but I'm saying the state of the church in the United States of America is not what you would consider healthy, right? I really think that the bride of Christ in 2020 belongs more on the Jerry Springer show than in a bridal gown. You know, if you just took the, took the why? Because we're fighting with each other. We don't know which way is up. We're, we're so confused. We're getting mixed up in the politics of the world. We don't know which way we're going. And yet Jesus says that we're supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we're all mixed up. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so I found myself a little bit like, eh, you know, the whole thing. Listen, we are in an election year. And what we are facing right now come this November one way or the other is we are facing a swap, swamp swap. Because as long as we are looking to human leaders, kings to fight our battles, people to solve our problems, then all we are ever going to end up with is more of the same thing over and over and over and over again. Transition, change, Cleaning the swamp, draining the swamp starts with me. It starts with you. It doesn't start with the leader and putting the right people in power. A nation is not strong because its leaders are strong. A nation is strong because its citizens are strong. And God has given us what we need to be the strength of citizenry. In New York City in Times Square there is a debt calculator. And if you go look at it, it will tell you what our national debt is. And in the bottom corner of it, it will tell you what each individual citizen's share is in the national debt. I think underneath it, they should put a swamp calculator. <laughs> and every citizen should get to see what part of the swamp they are responsible for. Because the reason there's a swamp in the United States of America today is not because of our leaders, it's because of us. It's because of the citizens of this country. Citizens make up a country, not the politicians and the leaders. When the children, when, not the children of Israel, when the people of God, the Jewish people, moved back into their land about 72 years ago, 1948, when Israel became a nation again. The whole land was desolate, desert, and swamps. That's actually historically documented. They came into the land, and it was swampy. So do you know what they did? They planted eucalyptus trees near the swamps because they use up more water than most other plants and shrubs and trees. And they were able to drain the swamps by sowing seeds. 
and I think there's a message in that for you and I, is that if the swamp in the United States of America is going to be drained, it is not going to be because we get the right king in the right place. It's going to be because we take the seed of God's word, the person of his Holy Spirit, And we, by faith, grab a hold of those things as he's made them available by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And we begin to live the way that God has called us to live, yea, that God will empower us to live. And it will truly be a grassroots change in our country. But it doesn't start in Washington. It starts here. It starts here. It starts in my house. It starts in my heart. It starts when I elect Jesus to be the king of my heart. And I say like David did in Psalm chapter 2, that I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That I say, Lord, you are my king, and I want to walk in your spirit, and I want to walk in your ways. You can swap the swamp, or you can seed the swamp, but it starts with you. And Jesus said this. He said that the truth will make you free. Father, we just thank you tonight that your word is so applicable and that your wisdom is so available and that it'll speak to us so freely and so readily. And so, Lord, as we have heard, as we have seen, as we've considered, we look, Lord, into the truth of your history and we see what you intended for man when you made him, what you have for man when you give him your laws and instructions, And what you've provided for us in the example of your son, the truth of your word, and in the promise and presence of your Holy Spirit. We desire as the body of Christ here, as Christians in Dutchess County in 2020, to be filled again with your Holy Spirit. To be separated from the swampy things that cause us to be a part of the problem. And that we might be anointed and filled with you, Lord that we might make a difference right where we are and that we might give you a pool of people you can choose from to lead change that will affect others. So would you hear our prayer, Father? As we open our hearts, God, to your reviving, to your conviction, to your chastisement, to your light, would you help us to receive in a spirit of love and goodwill that you're not angry with us, but that, God, you're ready to work. You're ready to move. You're ready to empower us. So help us, Lord, to be Christians. Help us to be salt and light in society. Help us to be moms and dads in the purest sense of what you've called us to be. Help us to love our kids and know our kids. Help us to teach and train them and sow into them the experiences that we've had and the things that you've taught us and change our nation from our homes, Lord. You said that if my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that you would come and heal their land. Lord, would you start in our homes? Would you start in us right now? Jesus We choose to elect you the king of our hearts, the king of our church. And would you be, Lord, the king of our county, our state, and our nation? Would you help us, Lord? Please give us your wisdom and your ways. 
And if there's anyone here and Jesus is not yet the king of your heart individually, you have yet to give your life to him, I want you to know tonight that he has nothing but goodwill for you. The Bible says that we serve a great high priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. There's no swamp with Jesus. And when he is king, we flourish. You flourish. And he loves you so much that he came into this world, lived a sinless life on your behalf, yet died a sinner's death on your behalf. And in so doing, he has provided a free gift of salvation that you might be brought back into a right relationship with him. It's a gift to be received. It's something that you say, yes, God, I believe. I choose to accept. I choose to receive. It's what we call being saved or born again. You open your heart to Jesus and you let him inside and you begin the relationship where he takes the place of the throne in your heart and he begins to empower you and teaches you to live. And if you don't know him personally, it's as simple as you saying to God with your voice, God, I believe in who you are and I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died and that you rose again for me. And would you please save me and give me your gift of salvation? I choose today to turn from my sinful, selfish ways and to follow you for the rest of my life, making you Lord and King of me and of my home and of my heart. And if you'll pray a prayer like that in your words or even from your heart to God, he never says no. And so, Father, I just pray tonight that you would help us to walk with you, to really know you, to really live for you, especially in these times. Would you empower us? Would you fill us? Would you hear us? For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.